today considered to be the father of modern business management theory, Peter Drucker, once said this about the Apostle Paul. I've shared this before, but this quote has gone down the black hole of uh, my papers and I can't find it, but this is the This is the gist of it. He said something like this. No wonder authentic Christianity never really took over the world. The standards of the Apostle Paul are so high that nobody in his churches could keep them. And yet, it's clear that Paul actually expected them to try. Paul's standards were high because the Holy Spirit of God was equipping him in his church planting work and was inspiring him in his letters to the churches. We come to 1 Corinthians 5 today, and Drucker's observation is a good one to highlight. Just a week after the terrible slaughter and the terrorist attack in Orlando, because this is a text about how Christians are to relate to people in the world around them, people who are not yet reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and have no allegiance to the ethics of the kingdom. The apostolic standards for how we are to relate to those around us and also in this text, how we are to relate to those in the church They're very high. This is a hugely important passage that underscores two things, both how strange authentic Christianity seems to modern people and how normal it actually is, given what human beings are. We'll explore that. We can only start today because the issues touching this fairly dramatic scandal going on in the Corinthian church are so similar to our own time, and it's important for us to unpack all of it and to do that well. What I hope to accomplish is two things, maybe among other things, but the first one is to help you see just how much and the nature of what it is that we are up against in the face and scrutiny of the secular culture around us, if we really do try to act on what we are. That is part of the, quote, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That is a church that follows apostolic teaching. This is timely. Because the church in Corinth is dealing with the issue of sexual boundaries in the life of the church. And many of you know that since the massacre in Orlando, historic Christianity has been attacked in certain quarters of our own society for the way it has drawn sexual boundaries in the life of the church, where we believe God himself draws them. And of course, historic Christianity has also drawn those boundary lines in the laws of many societies as well. Because, friends, unless we have a clear idea of what it is that we are up against as Christians, we will not know how to bear a fruitful witness to Christ as the ethics of his kingdom become more and more strange and retro and demeaning, it is argued, of human freedom. 
But the second thing I'm aiming at is, and it sounds paradoxical, and perhaps it is, and that is to help you see that when we do try to live faithful to the disciplinary part of the apostles' teaching, and we do that because their teaching is Christ's teaching, we are just doing what everybody around us is already doing in one form or another, even though so many people around us don't stop and think about it very much. They are doing things consistent with apostolic principles, even if they renounce Christ, because they're human beings made in the image of God. And that means that they know at least something of God's truth in the world. In this case, something of the importance of authority and discipline. Now, just a quick illustration. We'll come back to this next week. In our passage here, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul instructed the Christians in Corinth to kick out of their church one of their members who was shacking up with his stepmother. Now, that's pretty dramatic stuff. But the International Association of Athletics Federations just the other day did essentially the same thing when on doping charges it banned the Russian track and field team from competing in the Rio Olympics in August as an act of discipline. Turn, if you will, to the insert. You'll find it in the bulletin. And before we look at five, <clears throat> chapter 5, I want us to take a quick look at what Paul said to the Corinthians just previous to his words here in chapter 5. In the closing verses of chapter 4, two things are important, and I want to highlight them. If you have a Bible, you can um, see the end of chapter 4. But the first thing is that Paul stresses this, that the kingdom of God and the power at work in it is central. The kingdom of God and the power at work in it is central. All that Paul teaches, he puts into this framework, that believers in Jesus are citizens of a commonwealth, a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And then secondly, that pastors, elders, preachers are fathers to God's people. Paul sees pastors, preachers, elders as fathers of their people, expressing all the tenderness and sharpness that belongs to the office of fathers. That's timely, too, today for it being Father's Day. So you don't have it in front of me, but let me just read you these few verses. 4.16, I urge you then, imitate me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some, and the sense is some of you, are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? 
The central question is always, what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God and experience its power? Paul frames everything in terms of that question. Verse 20 of chapter 4 that you just heard, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The good news in the gospel is not just that we can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that is personal and vital, that we can have that all of it just by trusting him in his redeeming work and accepting his offer of the free gift of his righteousness becoming ours. We have been reflecting on that already this morning. That is central, that relationship. And because it's central, it means that everything else radiates outward from it. But the good news, the gospel, is about more. It is the good news about a kingdom, a commonwealth, a great, and we might say, grand community that is replacing all the little various kingdoms inhabited and ruled by bent people in our bent world. And so in Matthew 4, we read this, and Jesus was going about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is about a life, a whole way of living with other people. And it's always about a place for living and a rich variety of high purposes for being alive. A theologian put it well some years ago when he wrote, sin is not merely the violation of a law, a rule. It is the mutilation of a life. We'll find as we get to the practical parts of 1 Corinthians now that Paul has much to say about this way of life in the kingdom of God and what it's supposed to look like on a practical level as God lets loose the kingdom's power to confront human weakness and hard-heartedness. Well, secondly, we said that in those few verses just before chapter 5, Paul teaches that pastors, preachers, elders, they're all to think and act like spiritual fathers after the example of Paul. Paul considers himself the spiritual father of Timothy. That's what he said. But also of the Corinthians. And this is going to prove to be an important principle in his pastoral work with the congregation via his letters. He takes up the conceit, the metaphor of being to the Christians in Corinth something of a displeased father. When he said this in verse 21 of chapter 4, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? He could translate that spanking stick. That's what we used to call it in my house growing up. Paul is certainly not suggesting that he might bring fishing equipment with him when he comes, when he says, shall I come to you with a rod or with love in the spirit of gentleness? Do you want me tender and gentle, coming to give you praise? Or do you want me severe, coming with a tongue lashing, to give you a serious warning about your behavior, which is reflecting a kind of contempt for Jesus Christ. Do you want me an offended father when I come, or a grateful father? Think about it, he says. 
It's your choice. Of course, Paul is not going to spank them, but if he has to come with a rod, then he will wrestle with them metaphorically as all good fathers do when their kids are defiant and need correction. So that's all the backdrop of our passage here, which begins at verse 1 of chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter, and of course that's the real, quote, 1 Corinthians, a letter that we no longer have, one that came before this, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world because they're all over. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This man has, quote-unquote, his father's wife, almost certainly his stepmother, Paul means. The father is out of the picture somehow. It's not clear whether this man is just living with his stepmother, whether he is married to her. The woman, it appears, was not part of the congregation, since Paul says nothing about her. Paul had left Corinth some three years before he writes chapter 5, and so all of this has happened since he had been there. Paul hears about it, and he learns, too, that the congregation seems not only to tolerate the situation, but even to celebrate it. And so we read in verse 2, and you are arrogant. The implication is about this. Ought you not rather to mourn? Paul is scandalized. 
And so that you know Paul is not making it up when he says in verse 1 that even the pagans have higher moral standards than this. Let me read you something from Cicero, one of ancient Rome's great statesmen and philosophers. He died roughly 40 years before Jesus was born. Here's how Cicero reacted to the news that a Roman woman had married her son-in-law. He said, oh, to think of this woman's sin, unbelievable, unheard of in all experience, except for this single instance. Now, at least if the woman was significantly older than her son-in-law, the greater shame might indeed have been hers, certainly in the eyes of others. Of course, many modern people react in the same way. In the late 1980s, a well-known American celebrity was living with a woman, and then he took up with her daughter. She was 35 years younger than him. And even normally permissive people were indignant. But I want us to look first at the heart of the passage. And the heart of the passage is not the judicial discipline of this man who professes faith in Jesus Christ but then makes up his own sexual boundaries to live by as he goes. The heart of the passage is verses 6 through 8 and what it teaches us about our identity as Christians. Who are you this morning? What I am to do, or what you are to do, or not do, is a function of who you think you are. If your trust is in Christ, then regardless of your weaknesses, or your besetting sins, or your faults, you are holy. God has constituted you holy because you are forgiven. Christ's death has rescued you from the power of sin and death. Well, the question is whether you believe that. Some of us, as we ponder our faults and our shortcomings, can get so overwhelmed by them that it drives us at times to look for employment somewhere as a speed bump or something even less honorable, but this is who God says we are, that we are holy. The second part of your identity, if you are holy by God's decree, because you have put your trust in Christ, then you are called to live holy, to be on Monday morning in your relationships in your marriage, in your relationship with classmates, with co-workers, you are to be in those relationships what you already are in the mind of God. And that is holy. In other words, be what God has already made you. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. That's Paul's allusion to what he says at the beginning of this letter when he calls them those who are holy, those who are sanctified. For Christ, our Passover lamb, 
has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What is Paul doing here? It's interesting. Most of these Corinthians are Gentiles. But Paul has taught them, and he expects them to know the Jewish background in this situation. He's talking about the Feast of Passover. And part of the Feast of Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if you have the NIV, I think the NIV uses the word yeast here, but it's not yeast, it's leaven. What leaven is, is bread that is left to ferment for a while, And then it is added to another batch of bread, and that fermentation then spreads through the whole of it. That's where we get sourdough bread. And this is what the Jews did. They took a little bit of leaven, and they kept it, and then they added it to the new bread, and they did that through the year. Now, once a year, you had to get rid of all the leaven in your house, and you would start over, so to speak. And create a new batch. Well, Paul here is likening the leaven to sin. And he says, you really are unleavened. That is, God has made you holy through Jesus Christ, but you're not acting that way. And of course, getting rid of the leaven here means that this man should be excluded from the fellowship. Well, then Paul changes the imagery here, and he goes to the other part of the Passover meal, and that is the Passover lamb. The lambs that were killed in the original Passover, and their blood was painted on the doorpost. And when the angel of death saw that, it passed over that house, and those people were spared. Here, the Apostle Paul is talking about the ground of our holiness. It's the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus. And so what he is saying is because you have owned your guilt, you have run to the cross for cover and have trusted that Jesus' blood covers you just as the blood of that lamb protected the people, God constitutes you holy. And he calls you to live that out and be holy because that's what you already are. Listen to the opening Salutations, the very first sentence in the letter. Paul, to the church of God in Corinth, to those made holy. That's the first thing he says about them, that they have been made holy. The essence of holiness is not first moral purity, though that is there. The essence of holiness is to be set apart from others. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified or made holy, better I think to translate it that way, made holy in Christ Jesus and called to be the holy ones. It's a noun. The ESV has called to be his holy people. And you see, there's Peter Drucker standing amazed. The Apostle Paul actually expected his parishioners to trust what he was teaching them to do, to hold their head up high. Because God counted them holy, utterly pure, and without fault. Though they had many faults, as we do, because Christ had covered them by his sacrificial death. Utterly pure and utterly separated 
from the corruption of the world in order to be with God. And then he also expected them to aim with great determination at holiness in their sexuality, in their words, in their priorities, in the use of their money, in their time, in their character. Be holy because that's what you are. That's the Christian's identity. This, friends, it's our status and it is our calling to be holy like God. Not in a shriveled and joyless life, fearing to take even one step lest we disobey the living God. But grasping this, that to be holy is to be good through and through, alive to the beauty and the pleasure that there is in moral purity. Alive to God as the supreme love of our life and separated off from a corrupt and stained world. Separated off to be with him. You see, verses 6 through 8, the verses before it are about relationships on the horizontal level. The verses that follow this are also about relationships on a horizontal level. But this is about the vertical relationship in verses 6 through 8. It's about our relationship with God and that identity that God gives us and that he actually expects us to rest in in the way we think of ourselves. Because it's from that soul center, the very personal center where you and I define who we are. It's from there that everything flows outward. And here in chapter 5, it flows backward and forward from the center of the chapter. It flows backward to the opening verses, verses 1 through 5, where the theme is how I am to relate as a believer to the life of the church, since Christ constituted it holy and calls it to live holy. And that takes a very practical shape in this situation. That on the question of what to do with this church member who is living in incest, okay, it's not biological if this is his stepmother, but it is familial. What's the practical shape that it takes? Well, excommunication, excising this man from the community in a formal ceremonial act as a way, actually, to bring this man back to his senses and back to saving faith. Now, next week, we'll look at the details of the excommunication, but the power of the identity shaper that holiness is, it also flows forward from verses 6 through 8 to verses 9 through 13, where now there's a different theme at work how I am to relate to the life of the world around me since so many of its people are still unholy. That is, they are still in their guilt before God. They have not bowed before Christ. And in fact, so often they continue to thumb their nose at the values and ethics of the kingdom of God. And that puts them on the side of unholiness, on the side of corruption and stain. And at the final judgment, it will put them on the side of shame. That takes a practical shape, too. 
What does it look like? Well, Paul counsels Christians not to withdraw in self-righteous condescension from those who are still unholy, who have not been made holy by trusting in the merits of Christ. We will take that up further, too, because these few verses right there at the end of chapter 5 are profoundly important. I'll leave you with this. It's from a well-known 20th century French Catholic apologist for the Christian faith in a book called The Drama of Atheist Humanism. It's about the battle that's been joined for more than 200 years between the Christian faith and secular ideologies of various stripes that have challenged it and, in fact, continued to challenge it. The author, I think, captures the kingdom focus of the New Testament. And he has captured, well, the capstone of the kingdom ethic when he wrote this. Christians have not been promised that they will always be in the majority, rather the reverse, nor that they will always seem the strongest, and that men will never be conquered by another ideal than theirs. But whatever happens, Christianity will never have any real efficacy. It will never have any real existence or make any real conquests, except by the strength of its own spirit, by the strength of love. The only question then to ask is what does love, practically speaking, look like? in these situations that Paul is describing here. We'll take that up next week as we continue to reflect on this text. It's a remarkable chapter inspired by the Holy Spirit, so useful for us in the 21st century. Before we feed on the Lord Jesus, though, friends, let's pray together, shall we? Oh, Lord in heaven, we... We bow before you, and we remember the words of the psalmist, that light rises in the darkness for the upright. O Lord, as we reflect on the horrible thing that happened early last Sunday morning, we know from your word and your promises that you count us upright not because we have acted that way but because even by the power let loose in your kingdom the Holy Spirit has persuaded us of how unrighteous unholy we are and that only Christ can make us holy O Lord we bow our heads and our hearts as we reflect And so much violence in our society, in the world. And, oh Lord, our hearts cry out, how long do we have to endure this carnage? We think of our own hatreds and contempt for others, which you, Lord Jesus, have called a species of unlawful killing 
Oh Lord, our hearts cry out, how long do we have to live with the power of the sinful flesh in ourselves? Oh Father, you invited the Israelites of old who were exiled because of the disobedience of your people and they were in a pagan land. They were in Babylon, the place of idol worship. And you told them to pray for the well-being of the city. Because when the city prospered, so did they. Father, we do pray for our land in all of its unholiness. We think particularly of those who are still struggling in Orlando in hospitals, those who are injured, those who were there and escaped who are still having nightmares, those who lost the ones they loved there. Oh Lord, we cry out that you would come to them and do for them what you have done for us and show them how unholy they are because they are children of Adam like us and can only find that which every human being is looking for, that security and happiness which is eternal and cannot be taken away. Lord, how we thank you for the reports of your people rallying in Orlando to come alongside of those who are suffering and those who are helping those who are suffering. And we know that what's happened has set off new levels of debate about guns, about terrorism, about gay love and relationships. Oh, Lord, we pray that the very power of God let loose in your kingdom. And Lord, here we are just one little outpost of that grand and glorious kingdom that is coming. Oh Lord, by your grace, give us insight, give us much wisdom, give us courage, a grasp of what is true, and much love, oh Lord. We can't do these things by ourselves. But you are a God who gives, and you call us to live out our holiness by laying hold in fresh ways of faith, hope, and love, even as Abraham did, our father in the faith, even as Sarah did, our dear mother in the Lord. Oh, Lord Jesus, as we come and feast on you now, remind us of the tremendous cost that has made us, that has constituted us holy, that our hearts might be glad and even free as we eat and drink. But we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your name, even as we offer it to the high and holy Father, the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.